Hi, welcome to the Design Thinking Roundtable, a podcast which explores various aspects of design and how it can create change and social impact. I'm Anna Fayard, an ethnographer who researches, teaches, and practices human-centered design with a focus on social innovation and collaboration. And I love having conversations on design with passionate and mindful designers. My guest today is Ben Risen. Ben is a founding partner of pioneering service design studio LiveWork. He has introduced service design approaches to numerous organizations from startups to multinationals, launching many new services to market. Ben led the application of service design in public services with the NHS and other UK bodies. He has always had a passion for exploring how service design can enable more sustainable ways of living and working. Today, he leads the business, exploring new challenges and guiding the practice forward. Ben, welcome. I remember a conversation we had more than a decade ago about how you became interested in service design. At the time, you mentioned your interest in the triple bottom line. Can you tell me more about this and how this interest evolves and how does it influence fit your, in your current take on the role of design in the Anthropocene as defined in your LinkedIn article? Great. Well, thank you for having me. It's lovely to join. Um, if maybe I was going to tell the bit of backstory that uh, from, from that time and um, what's changed since then. So service design is kind of intertwined with live work for me, which is now a 20 year journey. Um, and the, the time that we started live work, I was finishing a master's um, at the master's was called responsibility and, and business practice. It was actually in a management school in Bath. And um, I'd taken it in order to try and see how I could connect the design, you know, my design career into something that I was deeply concerned about um, and you know, climate change and the ecological crisis, which at that point was far less kind of immediate. Um, but the, and the, the insight that came out of the course was from reading um, a book called Natural Capitalism. And there was a chapter in there all about service and about service being a, a kind of resource efficiency multiplier. And the, and the perfect example of this was for us as designers was the car sharing, because if you could you know, use a product to deliver the same amount of value as in, you know, people get to move around, but with far less product. So, you know, 10 families could use one car rather than one family use one car. So that was something which I kind of got my hands around and said, oh, that's something that needs designing, you know, people that that's a new value proposition that needs, you know, people need to understand, adopt, it needs to be a good experience. And then when we got the opportunity to work with a startup in car sharing, you know, we pitched to them, this, your service has to be as compelling and as lovely as, as owning the golf that you, that you rent out. So that was the kind of the logic back then. Um, and I guess the, the journey we've been on is we also had another thing going on, which was creating service design, which kind of took a lot of energy and, um, and kind of, I guess some of the, some of the ecological concerns took a bit of a backseat at times and, and also were quite hard to access, you know, um, most, for me, most of the sustainability world has been very technocratically concerned with, you know, counting something like carbon and looking at kind of little more engineering based solutions. So it's, it's to be kind of honest, it's been quite hard to find 
to find a role in there. Um, but more recently, so 2018, um, there was a, a kind of a combination of factors of partly the younger live workers coming and saying, hey, what are we doing about all of these things that scare us about, uh, you know, climate change? And then there was Extinction Rebellion in London, which I found myself sort of joining in on and and just the whole urgency took kind of took hold at that point. And, and we just had a better situation. Live work more supportive people. So we just have since then been trying to work out, you know, what that role is again. I read this this article that you published on LinkedIn, um, Designing the Anthropocene, and there's there's a lot in this article, and mm -hmm. um, rereading it uh, a couple of times. Um, and at the end of the article, you wrote, you know, specifically, it is an attempt to find purpose for myself and my design practice and the knowledge that a lot of things that we hold true are not so true anymore. And so, I, I was wondering if you could expand a little bit what what were these things we hold true and are not so true, and by what shall we replace them? Yeah, so I, I mean, that article is almost comes from another period of study. It wasn't a master's or anything, but I was just reading a lot. And um, and so the, the article is kind of me taking little things from from uh, kind of other from books and other writers and trying to piece together what I found in each of them. Uh, the, so the previous story, I think what's different from 20 years ago is that um, you, you know, these issues are, are upon us now, and I don't think that the whole, you know, the solution is in just kind of reconfiguring the current economy. Um, so I think probably 20 years ago, I was primarily thought that, you know, or, or wanted to position what we could offer as, it's a bit like you, you said, is it just electrification of vehicles? Um, so there is clearly a huge need for a very fast change in the technologies that we use to clean technologies. And I don't know if you saw the other day, but there was an article saying that, that the fossil fuel industry is subsidized to about $11 million a minute. So there's a massive reconfiguration of the whole economy. But there's also something else for me going on, is, which is these kind of deeper questions around, well, you know, we have fundamentally changed the geological record, climate change is with us for the for, you know generations. So we have to kind of also come to terms with living in a very different reality and the fact that we don't know what that's going to be and um, things are going to happen to us. We, you know, we're not in a position where you can design your way into a preferable future. You know, it's not a kind of A to B transition. Um, so, and the pan pandemic sort of shows that we're going to have to respond to stuff that happens as much as try and kind of figure out solutions. So. It was kind of dealing with with all of that. And there are there are so many other complexities coming through that I wasn't really engaged with, but have been more recently. Like the, these all these intersectionalities that people talk about between ecological crises and then global justice and dealing with the, the legacy of colonialism. They kind of all so interwoven that uh, that's kind of, I guess what I mean by things don't hold true. They, so one would be that we can just manage our way through a transition and kind of design future scenarios and it will work. And the other one is that we, um, our relationship and our, our, some of the beliefs that we have about the, you know, the economic system really need to be un, unpicked and re-put back together in a different way. And so I, I guess that knowing a lot less is, is the position now or kind of far fewer assumptions, um, which is why that article is more of a like, 
groping for way forward sort of feel to it. Thanks. I, I, I think it's it's really interesting your your point about like how it's changing our agency and our relationship to to future and how we can think about it. One of our previous guests, Claire Brass, was like telling me that when she starts, you know, a project, she always puts now the stakeholder, uh, the earth as a stakeholder in her mm. projects. And so I, I wonder, you know, uh, in your own work and, and live work projects, do you um, bring in or how do you bring in the non-human? Uh, and, 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 and particularly, do you do it internally or do you even talk about it with your clients? That's a great question. So just stepping back, I think that, Part of the article was inspired by Timothy Morton, who's written a book called Humankind, and, it, and the subtitle is um, Solidarity with Non-Human People. I, I just love his writing and the way he kind of messes with words and says non-human people and talks about, um, you know, the idea, just the idea that, you know, a, a meadow is a person or something like that, um, that kind of messes with all of our kind of assumptions or proof preconceptions around the relationship between humans and the natural world. And he, you know, he also says the word, you know, there is no nature. He's very, he he, I think he finds the word nature to be a word that distances, you know, us from other beings and ecosystems rather than being more interconnected. Um, the question about, about practice is a really, is a real challenge because I don't really think we do. Um, I mean, it, we're on a, a journey at LiveWork to, to just to start to think about how do we move forward from what is 20 years of sort of investment in human centricity? You know, it's, it, it's almost, and, it, and it's a challenge for everyone. It's like, I've put, you know, I've put my career into this. So I, you know, I've finally managed to convince the corporate world that customer centricity is important and that they should listen to it. And now Ben's coming in and telling us we should do, you know, um, something, <laughs> start all over again. So I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I think Claire, I know Claire and she's, She's probably ahead of of us in terms of that kind of practice of of, of doing that. We've just started to, um, and it's been really nicely, you know, driven by the team of just being offering clients who might who, where we might not have a you know anything green in the brief, just say, well, look, can we spend some time and talk to you about this side and how it relates to your work and and the specific work of you know individuals that we're working with whether, you know, in design teams or customer centricity kind of projects. So starting to open up questions. We're, we're working on a proposal to look at something in London around, you know, post-pandemic, um, you know, or this build back better kind of theme. And um, I guess what, what potentially what, what we're doing is what um, is another thing that Timothy Morton advocates for. He, he says, potentially the first step to being ecological is to be anti-racist. Like if we can deal with other humans, then you can start to kind of bring in other species and maybe you don't want to run before you can walk. So we're definitely pushing on having sort of other groups of people. And in our case, a lot of the, we've had a couple of projects where it's been children. So this London project, we're proposing that it's a child-centric view on how you might look at the neighborhood. So I don't I don't have an example of where we've we've gone beyond the, the humans yet. Well, theoretically we can start thinking about it, but in practice it's harder. 
I also would love your thoughts on the notion of designing collectively and co-creating that you mentioned in your article. This is a question I've been thinking a lot lately. How much can we really design with and avoid power dynamics? And um, how do we do that in particular in the, the context of sustainability, of designing for sustainability? So I think I'll start with, with saying I think that world of, of co-design, there are some there are practitioners who are really pushing boundaries. Uh, I mean, I spoke to George I the other week, and especially in, in the kind of social design setting. So a lot of LiveWorks work is either with corporates or with government agencies where there are power, you know, you're not, you're not going to avoid or suppress the power dynamics. It's sort of more important to understand what they are and, and have them at least above, above the table. And I think it's, it's a good challenge to designers to better understand that because I don't feel like that's the strongest part of design training is to, to really understand that. So you know, as an aside, we've been on quite a journey just to understand organisations better and how you engage them. Um, the, I don't see any other way to do service design apart from collaboratively because of the, because the, you know, the service is the delivery and the delivery is undertaken by like a wide range of people and by the users themselves as well. So just it's quite pragmatic from our point of view in a way that the collaboration comes from what works rather than what's right initially. Um, and then you were talking, but you were asking about how do you engage people in from a sustainability point of view and, and motivations and things. My fascination and kind of with all of that is because I have it myself, it's like what what mean what stops us from speaking about these things? Um, I kind of find that you know, I've definitely self-edited in context for years, and I see it's a bit like this. How do you step from the, the kind of current logic, this you know, this customer centricity? Let's say you're, you know, we work with a client that has this consumer obsession mantra. That's where they're trying to galvanise everybody. It's in a way, it's sort of awkward to step out and talk about you know climate change within that, partly because people don't have so much agency. And just don't have the the practice, the rituals, the routine, the routines to do that. So that's where, like I mentioned earlier, we've we've given all the team license to take a bit of time and and raise that topic and have a discussion about like how does this relate to your work and how do you you know what is your organisation promising the world and you know is that is that filtering down to where you know to your projects or or not and and what's what's happening there and trying to I guess take some sort of leadership role in allowing the conversation because I don't feel like motivation is the problem. I think that the how is more the problem. How do you engage and discuss? I think you've got most people in most organizations probably personally terrified, but having no way of connecting it to their work. your service design work, you've been focusing a lot on adoption and changing behaviors. And so I was thinking of this other piece you wrote about low carbon economy, where you argue that the solutions are already with us, but that speed is the essence. Uh, it's not about it does not exist. It's how do we make it happen? I, mean, I think this is the hard, this is the really hard thing. So things like I'm kind of almost oscillating between 
you know, the very, the more, the easier, easier part, which is like, how do you, uh, how do you provide, how does design support the things that we can understand need to happen? So if you've got low carbon technologies that need to be adopted, how can, how can that happen? How can service design support circularity by working on the kind of human factors around, around that again, probably with adoption. Um, but on the other side, you've got that, I've got that underlying nagging feeling like we are also going to have to change the way we live, stop doing certain things like how, and, and I haven't, this is much harder for me. You know, I would love to be able to just sort of step aside and say, how do you design just to not do, you know, for unadoption? Um, and this is more like personal experiments. I just, you know, for a year said, I'm not going to buy any new clothes. What does that feel like? And then I, you know, then have this upside, which is, oh, I don't have to go into shops. This is fantastic. You know, I don't have to go into changing rooms. So that, trying to understand um, how, how that kind of thing feels. But, you know, when you're set up as a consulting firm with, with clients, and, you know, those opportunities are, are less um, part of the business model, I suppose. So that's, the, that's why it's, it's more challenging. It's like, how do you find space to do that? to do that kind of that kind of thing which is why um you know this london project i mentioned to you is is kind of outside of the normal we're working with an ngo um, and the, the uk design council to explore this opportunity and try, it's it's carving out a little bit of space for us to say okay well what if you start at that systemic level with with the you know the open question about how you know what would so this is like what would a 15 minute out of borough of London look like? How do you find your way towards that with the people who live there? Early stages, but that's the kind of those are the kind of things I think need to start happening. Um, my colleague Rowan Conway works at UCL and is is heavily invested into the whole mission innovation space, which I think is the clearest thing I've seen for um, you know how I, I think we're going to need to have that kind of design process where it's more about convening communities. And this is kind of in the article in the, where I was stepping in the article as a sort of like, how do we, how do you have like large scale collaboration around certain things that you, directions that, you know, need to happen, but you don't know how you're going to get there. And, and you need large amounts of participation and people to move together at a sort of system level. One project that's been quite useful to to explore is, and it's sort of tangential because it's it's very tech oriented. But we worked with um, so with the, the UK Innovation Fund was looking at, at drone services, um, and the focus was on drone use for public for public good. So we they the identified the opportunity for drones within healthcare and emergency services and. Um, public infrastructure. Uh, so we, on that project, our role was to facilitate a collaboration that was right across um, that system. So you had from the, you know, the government, the aviation regulator, people who are developing network technologies, people who are building the, the actual vehicles. And then we had the users, but in this case, the users are cities and health and hospitals and fire departments and things like that. So we, you know, that was a fantastic project because we had this kind of meta journey, which was around the adoption of drones and the deployment of drones. It worked at lots of different speeds and levels, and you had all of these different moving parts in it at a sector kind of 
level. So from a methodology point of view, that was really useful because you could see how that worked. And I also connected that to, you had another question that you'd sent to me um, around students asking about facilitation. Is our role just facilitation? I sort of, if you look at that project, it's, it's definitely not just facilitation. It's a lot of facilitation and sort of, and not just facilitation of workshops, but facilitation through storytelling, through visualization, through, you know, creating prototypes that people can engage with. So all of the design toolkit is facilitative would be my answer to them. Everything you're doing is trying to facilitate an organization or a system to explore a different way of doing things. Um, and that, you know, that was really kind of struck home on that project because we, you know, we had about 50 stakeholders. <laughs> about facilitation, this is something that has been coming up lately a lot in my conversations with designers. As a designer, even if you're facilitating, you still have your stance, your point of view. So how do you facilitate but still hold your stance and are not only the one who holds the pen? So that project, we've had a lot of questions like that and discussions like that. And this understanding the, the purpose of, so in this case, there was a quite a clear purpose for the, for the project, which meant, you know, so it's not your stance as a, um, individual, but it's your your stance as the designer who's holding the intent of the, of the project. And actually, it was quite it was quite hard because one of the you know, one of the questions we had in there was the, to the to our earlier discussions: How do you sort of stop the world just rampantly adopting technology because it's there and thinking that more is better? Um, you know, and and one of the inputs to the project was some research that showed a huge amount of public skepticism to drones in cities quite understandably you know they might they're noisy and they might fall on you and um they don't seem necessary you know we seem to be getting on fine and and then there is an opportunity to use them that would potentially reduce vehicle traffic and mean that you could deliver things much energy more less energy intensively so there are you know there there's a nuance um and actually, so I was thinking with that article I referenced, this, uh, one of the books I referenced was Defiant Earth by Clive ha Hamilton. Who's a, and he talks about human beings having to get to a future where we are really able to, we're not being Luddites, we're not just hiding from stuff, but we're not being crazy eco-modern sort of techno-utopians. We're having to make complex ethical decisions as we go. And it was amazing on that project how and it was quite hard to combat that tech push, you know, that just it is good. You know, some, someone stood up and said, well, in the future, we'll have taxis flying people up and down the River Thames. And it's like, yeah, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> and you have to stand up with sort of at that point actually was in a big, in a big meeting. And I felt like I had to stand up and say, that really isn't the scenario I want to be, thus to be pursuing. You know? And this takes a little bit of, you know, like, to, I'm going to, stick my neck out here. This is a great segue to my last question, which is about the unintended consequences of designing for sustainability. I'm thinking, for example, of recent debates about electric cars. What are the hidden costs from an environmental perspective? Um, isn't it also a way to look for a fix instead of rethinking our consumption culture? Moreover, what is the impact on the global south of developing sustainable technology for the global north? You've reminded me of back on the masters I did, and I think it was, it might have been uh, one of the 
the people who actually introduced the triple bottom line concept to us as students was just saying, you know, in in the future, running an organization is going to be far more complicated because you are going to have to, in the, in that case, you know, you're going to have to consider people, planet and profit. Um, and that most businesses are kind of geared up just for the profit bit. So it's good. Yeah, I can't see how it, it just doesn't get way more complex and the, and, the, and its ethical complexity, you know, is, and how, you know, how do, how do you deal with the trade trade-offs, like something with EV where you've got lithium mining and, um, and I've been reading recently about people who are really scared that the kind of focus on the climate crisis is, is detracting from the, you know, the bio, biodiversity crisis, because if, it, if all the money chases climate change, but it's not looking at, uh, I have absolutely, you know, no answers here, but I did, I guess, was aware of this when writing that article and, and felt like, you know, maybe the one thing that designers got to offer is the, is the sort of cycles of, of testing and learning rather than the A to B, it's a, you know, implementation of, of something. It's really hard because on one level, I think, you know, huge adoption of, of electric vehicles is fantastic. You know, they, as my understanding is they have a, a much, you know, lower lifetime carbon footprint, but, um, you know, I also read about the mining impacts of the batteries. So, and I guess the question is, you know, how does a, how does the design industry get much better at, at those, those trade-offs or those ethical questions and it's not normal not feel you know there's something we're actually doing at the work is is working with um a collaborator who who's comes from that world of, of sort of justice and reparations and things like that and how do you, you know training ourselves to be better at having those conversations how do you how does that become part of the skill set and starting with the differences that we have internally and then thinking about, okay, the differences we might have on project with clients and how do we strengthen that, that muscle. There's one other sort of angle I have on that, which is I really don't want, <laughs> I don't want design to sort of lose the creative playful element in all of this, you know, it could, all of these issues, you can get very you know, almost sort of paralyzed with anxiety about doing the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing or, and, you know, we, it's partly personally, you know, I just, it's, we, it's good to have fun and we have a, you know, we have this sort of reputation for introducing a, a more enjoyable way of going about tackling regular everyday problems. Um, and just to, get, to give you an example, you, met, you mentioned AI. We had a, a really fun project recently to look at AI futures in healthcare in the UK. Um, so, and by doing that, we were able to raise some of these issues without it being a confrontation. It was more like, hey, here's a story. And it was a very lovely project because we were using some speculative design methods. So we were, we had one scenario that was looking at, okay, so what if AI was in the hands of, you know, was in the hands of pregnant people and it empowered them to kind of be able to manage their, you know, their pregnancy in a, in a, in a better way, you know, the data was guiding them. Enabling them to challenge the health system, to, and that was quite a nice way of sort of bringing these things up and telling stories without making. And this is, like, I guess, a power of design. You can depersonalize disagreement or difficulty by putting it into the object or the story or something like that. I feel like that's really important that we carry on. You know, we probably need to be way more creative. Um, we've we've been toying with the idea of 
Like, what if we start talking about future customers, as in the people who will be living in, a, you know, I don't know, a net zero scenario or a changed climate scenario, and then as a way of bridging between the customer centricity logic now and and this future. So, and I saw some lovely work from a, a friend called Harriet Wakelam in Australia, where they'd created climate futures for their customer segments and their personas. They'd just taken them into the future and shown how they were living in different in different scenarios with different future conditions. And it really helped her insurance company start to think about what things they might need to be doing for their customers in 10 years' time. I always tell people uh, who uh, are a guest on this podcast that I, I, I really appreciate just having the, the time to, you know, just think about these these issues uh that we sometimes like either we're too busy or it's too big and so just uh bouncing uh ideas like that so i i really appreciate uh, you taking the time to do that too so well, thank, thank you very much well i really like it's a lovely conversation to have and to be asked to talk about these things so thank you thank you for listening to the design thinking roundtable podcast produced by the Social Innova Hub at Nova SBE in partnership with the Design Lab at NYU Makerspace. If you think this episode could be of interest for someone in your community, share it. And don't forget to tag us. Our Twitter handles are Social Innova Hub and NYU Makerspace. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.